Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. And we are live. Hey guys, this is Ruben Dua from Dub's podcast, Connection Loop. And I am on with Randall Chestnut. Randall and I are going to get into this idea of unlocking our minds, unlocking our lives, you know, based on so many things that are actually in our subconscious. So, uh, Randall, if you please could just give me a short bio on yourself and then let's get into this. Right. Well, you know, I grew up with two sisters and if you grew up with uh, siblings, especially I'm the oldest male. Um, we had a sign in, uh, in our hallway that walked to the bedroom and it says, uh, you don't have to be crazy to live here. But if you are, it helps. <laughs> Anyone who has siblings knows that it can get crazy at times. And, and that's the way my life has gone. I've, I started out, I was an intelligence analyst and uh, I moved from that to a flight attendant. And then I uh, just fell in love with marketing as a flight attendant and left and started a marketing firm. And that's kind of where I've ended up. This, this the summarized version. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, I, I love that journey because first of all, I can relate. I have two sisters. I am a middle child, not an older. <laughs> so, so that's, that's a thing. Uh, but the, the, the idea of, you know, being in the service industry and providing support for people and frankly, a way that people can protect their own lives, you know, through, through education and through best practices, and of course, what um, the aviation organizations mandate, you know, these types of things, those types of uh, that type of empathy, that type of compassion, that type of servitude, you know, I think is so important. And I and I, I feel inspired that you come from that background because I have a lot of respect for people that that are in that in that profession. And, uh, you know, frankly, I'm one of the very few people that actually listens to the educational piece <laughs> before the light <laughs> takes off. All right. <laughs> Um, but what, uh, what, what would you say that you learned on your journey? Um, you've obviously traveled a lot. You've seen a lot of people. You've spoken to a lot of strangers. You've made, you have no problem creating relationships with strangers, I presume. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, I, I, there, I, at some point I have to, I'm going to have to ask you, are you an introvert and an extrovert? We'll get into that later because I'm curious. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, but what would you say that your journey to, to creating your firm was? What did that look like? Um, so, so like I said, I started out, you know, basically my dad said, Hey, you got, when I graduated from high school at the bottom of my class, uh, my dad said, you have the three days to find a new place to live. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, thank you for the graduation gift, dad. <laughs> and I had I, back then, you know, some people have an idea. They want to go to college, what they want to be. And, and that's great. I had no clue. I was an entrepreneur back then. I had like 150 yards that I had mowed and I didn't back in the eighties, you know, this word entrepreneur wasn't a word. It was just, I wanted a four wheeler or a three wheeler back then. So whatever I needed to do to buy that. Right. And uh, so, so I went, I'm like, well, if, if I got three days, how about I just join the army? So mm. I went down to the army. I said, Hey, I want to join what I got to do. And they go, wait, you have to take this test so you can pick from these jobs. I'm like, okay, where's the test? Oh, you got to sign up for that. I'm like, I need it today. So long story short, I go, I, they end up working it out. I take the test. I come back the next day and they said, basically, you can have any job that you want in, in, in our uh, list of careers. And I'm like, OK, well, I want a job that I don't have to get my hands dirty. <laughs> I, it's, I don't have to work outside. 
and he narrows it down and he comes across the one that says uh, intelligence analyst. And I'm like, wow, that sounds like some spy stuff. I'm in. And it wasn't. But it was uh, a journey that, you know, I think life puts you in a place that you need to be um, where when I joined and I did that position and in and, uh, and a, and a funny caveat, my commanding officer was Captain Michael Flynn at the uh, 111th Military Intelligence Brigade at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And that was in 1987. Hmm. So, you know, you know, he's what he ended up you know, growing into. Um, so I didn't know back then that when you think of an intelligence, it's a bunch of data. And you actually I watched an interview you did with the Harmon brother, one of the Harmon brothers, the CEO. And he talked they married data with with uh, design. And it's, that's kind of the, the similar story back then. He's like, all an intelligence analyst does is gather data to form a story to give to someone that can do actionable things with it. And that's basically what good marketing is. Gather data, create some actionable steps and then execute on the plan and then go back to the data and let the data do the, you know, the, the circle of life, so to speak, in marketing. Mm. In between those two. I did a job that on the surface this was really honestly just to have fun, be a flight attendant, travel around the world. My buddy was doing it. He said, hey, you get to travel around the world, get paid. And there's a beautiful woman like I'm a young guy. That sounds like a plan. But what I really gained from it was a perspective about people from all over the world, it's different cultures from India to Pakistan to Latin America to, to you know, different parts of Africa. And, and I learned that pretty much we all want the same things. We just have different cultures that get us there and different you know, values but our beliefs. But the value system around the world is the same. Yeah. And, and what would you say? How would you say that, that, that it's all changed in terms of, you know, yeah. how, how, how we uh, as, a, as a race, as a culture? I know exactly how it's changed. Humans, I mean, Aristotle said by nature, man is social. Mm. But what we have done, because we're just so brilliant at it, is advancing things that we have actually created technology that makes it easier for us to not be social. Like if you want a burger, you can you can have somebody bring it to you. You don't have to even talk to anybody. You don't have to drive a car. I mean, think about everything that is in our life that's becoming automated uh, and it's actually pulling um, those social bonds that we build and understandings between people. And, and it's really, in my opinion, and I'm not a, a, a doctor, but I do uh, work in the field of neuroscience with other doctors doing marketing. That is a huge deal. Hmm. And, you know, there's this there's this post that you have that you that you put out on LinkedIn at some point where it shows uh, a, a tape measure and then it shows yeah. how one inch is totally different from one tape measure to the next. And, you know, the way that I, I interpret that is, is interpretation <laughs> and yeah. everything is subject, subjective. Should the metal piece go on this side or should go, should go on that side? <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Right. I mean, life is always going to be about perception and then perception is truth to you, but that doesn't make it true. Mm -hmm. And we yeah. have and that goes back to, you know, why I wrote the book. It's like if you understand how the mind, the mind is only programmed to do two things, survive and thrive. Anything mm -hmm. that it thinks is a, is a threat, it will immediately do whatever it needs to do to get rid of the threat. Mm. And if it's something that helps you thrive, well, it, it, it'll push you towards that. Those are the only two things that your mind is programmed. The unfortunate part is that, you know, over evolutionary times now, the threats that seem like threats to our mind are not really threats any longer. Like, the public speaking is perfect example. The, the 
the reason that most people, and you know this, are afraid of public speaking is because they will be rejected. And, you know, you go back in evolution, you know, way back in time, if you were ousted out of the community, that was a death sentence. Mm. You couldn't survive. Yeah. Which is ironic that you, you fast forward and technically, then, you know, you can't survive with um, mentally. You can fi- survive physically without other humans and social interactions, but your mind will go crazy. Mm. Well, I, I think that this is why people are more afraid of dying than they are public speaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, fear of rejecting, getting ousted or embarrassing yourself to a group. And now not just a small group in a, in a yeah. room or an online summit, but whatever social media is going to propagate out after a result. That, that's frightening for a lot of folks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, how, how would you say that, uh, you know, this idea of going back to you know, our childhood, going back to our life experience, going back to our trauma... And understanding that allows us to actually liberate ourselves from that from that fear. Yeah, I was, you know, there's a, uh, I think it's called Brain Games. There's on, uh, it's on Netflix. It used to be on Netflix. I'm a and they actually, they actually had a doctor, and you may have seen this episode, um, where people who had phobias, and one of them was a, a, a phobia of, of spiders. What is that? Arachnophobia. Mm. And uh, they could cure it in two visits. Mm. And, the, and what they found is that we think, as, and I felt this, thought this as well, that when we pull out a memory in our brains, that we, it's like pulling out a book off a shelf and then you put it back in the same place. Well, what they actually found is that when you pull that memory in your mind and you relive it and you go to put it back in your short term or long term memory, it actually recreates a, neuro, a new nerve and pathway. So um, what they ended up finding is this medicine uh, that blocks, uh, it's a beta blocker that blocks actually, actually. So when it goes back in to remember that they, you take this pill, which for uh, heart disease and it blocks the nerve and it doesn't recreate that memory again. Hmm. And they come in the next time and they say, Hey, we're going to go over to the room and touch the spider. And they say, I don't know why I'm not afraid of the spider anymore. Hmm. And it, yeah, it, well, I- I think that 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 is that right there is I think one of one of the biggest opportunities to us this idea of uh, neuro linguistic programming where we can actually rewire the way that our brains work you know yeah uh, it's it's truly profound it just requires it requires a commitment and it requires a reframe you know anytime that we're in a tra- traumatic situation we tend to go back to that thrive survive fear flight freeze and then we have through parts of our brain, we make a choice. You know, we, we say, well, we're going to do X or we're going to do Y. But to actually just breathe and take a minute to, to count backwards or take a moment yep. and to reset is basically telling your brain to rewire that. And if you do that enough times, um, in fact, you, you, you overcome and you heal yourself. Most yeah. of us don't take it. It's literally a three second investment. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Because the, 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 I don't remember exactly which drug that's secreted that moment that someone says something that, that you have a visceral reaction to mm-hmm. and it secretes that immediate the cortisol. Yeah. Yeah. The cortisol. Mm-hmm. And you want to make uh, what you have to do is let the cortisol dissipate in that yeah. three to five seconds. And then you could, <laughs> you could answer logically and not answer off of an emotion. Right. So, uh, you know, what do they say? do something with your hand, do something in your mind, do something with your breath, force yourself into that situation, you know, force yourself to actually take that five seconds 
And and watch what happens when you use when your amygdala gets yep. put aside to a, uh, for a second where you're not actually in a, in a survival situation and you're using the limbic system, which is more analytical. Um, and frankly, the part of our brains that we're trying to work on the most to ultimately be better thinkers. You know? Absolutely. Um, that's that's profound, man. It's the hardest thing to do. It's like a oh, simple yeah. science that's a, that's yeah. the most complex to actually implement. And yeah. what's so interesting is you've written a book about a very similar topic. What was that process like? What was the, how did you decide to write a book on this? Um, what were your catalyst points? Um, what was the process like? Yeah. Um, you know, I originally set out, I just said, I'm going to write a book. It was kind of one of those, I had a list, I'm like, I want to do all of these things. And one of them on the list was a write a book. And I thought, well, what would be the most valuable book that I could write, not for everyone, but maybe for my daughter or future generations. And like, I would, I was always curious. I wonder what my great grandfather was like, and mm. you know, they didn't write anything. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to start writing down everything that I can remember um, just about myself. And I don't know if you remember in, in writing class, they called it looping where you just continuously wrote. And if you couldn't think of anything, then you just wrote, I'm thinking of something and you never let yourself stop think, uh, writing. So I use that technique and I, I think I learned that in the fifth grade. That's about the extent of my writing skills. Mm. <laughs> so I, uh, I started writing about, I was like, okay, I'm going to think of the, the furthest memory is how it is where I started that I can remember. And I'm going to write about it and I'm going to try to remember how I felt about it. Cause that's what I really wanted to share. Not just the actual moment, but how mm. I felt about it. And then uh, as I was writing it, then I remembered even further back. I remembered all the way back to um, I was in diapers and um, I, my mom was eating a cupcake and one of their friends, she went to eat the cupcake and she hit it or he hit it and it, you know, put the cupcake on her nose. And, and, and I could feel I was writing. I could feel that my mom was embarrassed. She didn't say anything, but I could feel it even as a as a child. So I just started writing all of those things down. And as I wrote him. I, I found myself moving less away of telling my life story and wanting to tell like, well, what made all of these memories? And it was, I mean, they were there and it was just little key moments, a flower, a color, a smell. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. And it was from that, that I started talking, you know, like, wow, our, our, I think our brain does actually remember all this stuff. And then doing a little bit of research and, and, and then it started forming into different chapters to back up the research. So it wasn't any formal to answer your question. It's nothing formal. I just started writing it. <laughs> and that was, you know, that's the biggest part about doing anything. It's like the first creation in the mind, the second you have to bring it to the real world. Mm. And that's it. Yeah. And then how, how has writing this book helped, helped you to overcome things with your relationships and your in your career, getting over this idea of, of getting a piece of text like this out there to the world. What was that process like for you? Yeah. Uh, you know, we're all fallible as humans. I mean, you can you learn and do things. You know, it's like they say the, the uh, a plumber, if you go to a plumber's house, they probably have a lot of plumbing issues. They don't okay. actually fix their own house. <laughs> yeah. um, I, if I had to say the, the benefit of writing the book was, A, I just realized that I had a, a skill I never even knew I had, which is writing. You know, I go back, I go back and actually read the book sometimes because I wrote it a few years back. 
And uh, I'm like, I said that I, I thought that <laughs> he's like, I didn't realize I had that that thought in my head. And uh, there's areas of like, mm, what did I write about this? And I go back and actually take advice from myself <laughs> in situations, mm. which is, you know, it doesn't sound like you would need to uh, do something like that. But, you know, life gets in the way. You have many other uh, things pulling you in all different directions. Other people needing your attention. At the moment I wrote the book, I, I gave it my full attention. Mm. Well, isn't it that, uh, you know, when we're a child, um, we are um, unadulterated, we are unfiltered, we are truly authentic, you know, we're not, you know, barred by humanity and by life, um, not littered with these ideas of, you know, fear and that there's ceilings above us. Uh, and that, you know, our younger selves, in fact, though maybe foolish and maybe naive, in fact, can teach us so many things in our older years. Right. We have more responsibilities. <laughs> and, yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. I mean, we learn it from our children. We see it and you see in your children. I don't know how old they are. I have a 12 year old and mm. I see you know, just little things that she does that I recognize from my childhood. And, uh, you know, I, I try to cultivate things that society may think that, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, letting them experience those things. Um, yeah. Nowadays, you know, I grew up in the 80s. So it was I, I believe that was the best time to grow up in because mm. I grew up in that era. What kind of BMX bike did you have? Uh, I had a um, I had a Hutch actually. Nice. I had a Diamondback. <laughs> okay, yeah, Diamondbacks, Hutches, those types of bikes were. If you had one of those, you were cool. <laughs> did you have foot pegs on the back pedals? On the I, back did, I did, but I wasn't as good as other people in the neighborhood at it. Well, those those were used for one of two reasons. Number one is for tricks, where you actually <laughs> jump back there. And number two is a friend that doesn't have a bike yet or a yeah. sibling or something. You want to give them a ride. That is so true. Yeah. So I, I recently tapping back into my inner child, I actually put those foot pegs on my on my bike. And my, my kid is, is rides on the back with me sometimes. That's kind of a, a throwback. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, uh, you know, I used to ride skateboard. I was much better at skateboarding. And uh, whew, I tried to do that as an adult. And uh, those muscle memories, it's not there. Mm. Like, I know I could do this. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, in, you saw some videos where I'm actually on a skateboard, and uh, funny enough, I am a month and a half, almost two months now, recovering from a broken hip, uh, where I actually wow. uh, uh, bailed on my skateboard. So that's that's Ooh. my story. But uh, yeah, I will be yeah. back on it, and I made a poor choice. I was riding at night, and so I couldn't see a stone that kind of projected me. Newton's third law working against me, but nevertheless, <laughs> I will be back on that board. So well, that's I'll good. Get, yeah. Uh, my, my new question here is this idea of self-doubt. You know, where does self-doubt come from? Because there is this confidence barrier that I think we're all facing. And there's, there's very little that separates us from hyper-successful people or even hyper-happy people. You know, a lot of it is just being confident and, you know, breaking through uh, trauma and breaking through self-created, self-imposed limitations. Mm -hmm. um, how do we how do we get over self doubt? How do we first understand self doubt, and then how do we get over it? Well, I can you know, like I said, I'm not a doctor. I just read a lot. I read like five six books a month, but you know that's where I get my knowledge from, and then I form my opinion. So what I'm going to say is just my opinion. It's not necessarily fact. Self doubt comes from your environment, the environment you grow up in, the parents, the everyone that you hold 
their uh, words in high regard. And that's usually your your family members is usually the first place, depending on how old you are. And you know, when you move into your teenage years, you move away from your your parents and your siblings for for guidance, and you move to the the other thirteen year old that has no idea, and you look for them for validation and and what your value is. And the the longer that we stay in putting our value based on what other people uh, think of us, the harder it is for us to, to build confidence as, as an adult, you know, and that comes down to just being a, a good parent and, and being honest with your child and pushing them to do things and understand that, uh, you know, confidence is something that you build in yourself and you don't get it from anybody else. You have to build that yourself. Hmm. So you mentioned this idea of, you know, pushing your kids and I'm the product of that in many ways. And on some things it worked and on some things it pushed me away. Right. Yep. You know, my parents pushed me to get into music and, you know, now music is, is, a, is a part of my is a part of my life. Everywhere I go, I've got music in every direction of my life. There's some musical instrument, whether it's a guitar or a drum kit or even, uh, you know, keys of some sort, percussion most definitely as well. And uh, my parents, in fact, pushed me to do the Suzuki method, which is a very conservative, very old school, classical form, lots of Mozart. You know, you, you might recall Minuet One. This is mm -hmm. like one of the basic songs right. in music, you know, reading and playing. And I initially I said, I don't want to do music. I don't want to play that stuffy instrument. I don't want to go to violin or piano. I don't want to do that. But I, they pushed me. And then I started to read music and I started to understand it. And then I started to just feel it within. And then I moved course to rock and roll i got my first rush album led zeppelin you know, oh, so i went in a different direction ultimately but i always go back to classical um and i i really connect to it i listen to it quite often um you know when i now now as a father you know i find myself pushing my kid hey listen you, you got martial arts you know you got to do it let's let's get this thing going you know you're an orange belt we got to we got to progress you and sometimes he doesn't want to do it he just wants to watch his ipad on the on the sofa uh, my question for you is what, and, and of course, who is the expert at being a parent, but I'd love to get your opinion on this, is what is your take on when we need to push our kids, when we need to push members of our team, and when we need to let them sort of discover something for themselves and actually just be a guide and step back? Right. You know, that, that's probably one of the best questions that I've been asked, and I've done these pod, uh, probably hundreds of podcasts, live shows, and interviews. That's probably the best question that I've ever been asked. I legitimately well, want to know. <laughs> yeah, no, that is a great question to the because I think all parents want to you know want their kids to have the best. Um, I would say that it, it, as a parent and as an employee, it is incumbent on us to understand who our kids really are deeply and who our employees are, and you could only do that through conversation, like open dialogue that has that that it isn't sitting down across from each other and say, "Tell me a little bit about yourself, son." that is never going to elicit. It's you're fishing and you're talking about they, and, you know, as an adult, we're much better at hiding things, uh, uh, motives behind conversations than uh, younger generations are because we just have a lot more experience at it, but sitting there maybe fishing and talking about like, you know, what's going on in life and under and see what their reaction, see, ask them, well, how do you feel about that? not in a way that you they feel like you're judging them that you're actually asking them for their opinion and really understand who your child is deeply are they are they in, like you were saying, introvert extrovert do they what things do they like 
and make sure that you guide them towards those things. And, and I think it was uh, Jocko Wellick. He said when he was leading troops in his book, uh, Extreme Leadership, that you basically it's like bowling with the bumpers. You just make sure that they don't go in the, the uh, gutter and you kind of give them that space to, to, for, for them to, you know, to roam around in. But you're still in control, but they still feel like they're in, uh, you know, have their own freedoms to do those things. Mm. And it's the same as an employee. You, you, depending on how many employees, if you have five or, or, or 600 and you hear Gary Vee talking about this type of stuff, it's like you need to understand these people. Sometimes they're in the wrong, wrong spot and they have a better skill somewhere else. It's the same with the kid. You have to, you know, and but you still do want to push them outside of their comfort zone because later in life, they'll be more rounded people. As opposed to maybe they didn't like music. Now, you know, music, you know how to read music. You understand how important music and the arts is as a whole. Yeah. I don't so know if that answered your question. So well said. No, I really <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, so what has been your your process with 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 storytelling? You obviously have a very rich life, by the way. I never mentioned I never had a chance to say this, but thank you for your service, by the way, years oh, ago. <laughs> um, well, lucky but, I was in before there was any. I was in between. I think they just came back from getting Noriega in Panama. And then it mm. was when I got out, it was desert uh, shield, not storm. Ah, OK, got it. Yeah. So you've been you've seen things, obviously, in your life. Mm -hmm. And storytelling is a big part of your vibe, you know, literal storytelling through your book open your mind and let that out, but also in your content and creating videos and, you know, creating relationships with people, obviously LinkedIn, where you and I have initially connected. Right. Um, my, my question is, what is, what is your overall kind of overarching theme with your video process? What, what's the thesis that you're trying to convey here? What do you share in your content? Um, yeah, I'm curious by nature about everything. There's not, I don't think there's one thing that I'm not interested in. Like, I want to know about everything. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate part for me is that you just can't learn everything in, in such a short amount of time. There's so many things to learn, but you can be interested in all of those things. And being around people from engineers who think differently than artists and artists uh, in, in painting, from music to um in all spectrums is I've always, I've just always been curious about into people and, and, and what makes them tick and how, you know, one person can look at the exact same thing and come up with a, a, a total different uh, perception of what that is and, and trying to be uh, cognizant of that what they tell you they see is true because I believe by nature that people are good people or good. There's evil in the world that no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what you're talking about is, is empathy, you know, it's, it's yeah. understanding perspective, you know, right. it's when, when we lack empathy, all we see is our perspective. And if we look yep. out towards someone else, we're not seeing anything from their perspective. And all right. we're seeing is the way that they're reacting to the conflict <laughs> Right. is probably a little unfair. <laughs> no. Yeah, I agree. But you know, I'll, I'll, I'll add this to empathy that if you look at the, you know, the great minds from Socrates to Marcus Aurelius to Nazis, uh, Newton, you name all of them, they all had one thing uh, in common. They all questioned the norm. Mm. And it, 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 too much empathy um, 
you, you, you unknowingly don't question the norm. You just accept it. And uh, the people who change the world at the moment that they change the world, no one liked them. The whole world did not like I mean, you can go back to Jesus or if you believe you name anybody who was a profound uh, impact on humanity at the moment that they did it. They didn't like them mm-hmm. at all. It took generations to, to emotionally detach themselves from those moments and not have a vested interest in it or, or just a, a philosophical interest in it. To, to pull themselves out. And that's all of me, Aristotle, Socrates. I mean, they, he drank the potion <laughs> mm. to prove his point. And I think we find ourselves, we're no different than you could go back thousands of years. And if you were, could look at the political, you know, going on in Rome or the Byzantine empire or the Egyptians, it was exactly the same as today because our brains have not changed. The part that makes it, um, a little different is that we have too much information and that information is controlled by a small group and it's information that influences people's perceptions. Mm. And we have to use our brains and be thinkers, which is hard because it uses actual energy and uh, we're lazy by nature. So we accept what we what, what somebody from Yale told us or from Harvard. And I'm not disparaging that by any means, but that's lazy. We say, well, he's from Harvard. He must be right. Yeah. Whichever side of the coin it is, because there's always two sides of every coin. Right. And uh, right. Well, I mean, my, my takeaways of that are that it takes confidence. <laughs> it takes confidence <laughs> and it takes overcoming of self-doubt. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, you know something that I, and I want to say this for you and your team. Um, and when I speak at I speak at real estate events and I speak mostly uh, for do- at doctors groups and like hospital groups and from chiropractic uh, events and all the way to alternative medicine is I said with video conf- confidence is going to be your number one thing. You may be confident in your study, whatever field you're in in medicine, but that doesn't always translate to you emoting it as as uh, confidence to the person who is listening to it on camera. Mm. And if they're sitting in front of you, um, it's a little bit easier. But on camera, you it's a skill you have to learn to be a little bit more emotive in your speak and, and a little bit more dynamic in, in things. And your platform, Dub, that you've created, unknowingly gives people, when they create these small little micro, uh, micro uh, videos to share with either strangers or you know, people in their work group, unknowingly, they get better at it. A little at a time and it builds confidence because if you can be confident on camera in person you're twice as confident yeah isn't that true yeah yeah well it's, go ahead i was gonna say no it's it's uh I, you know, i'm psyched that that you that you understand kind of our thesis and you know what my my purpose is you know i i uh not to speak about myself too much here but i i am really passionate about supporting people to to communicate with video because the, the problem that I'm really trying to solve is this idea of trust, where trust yep. has just been lost on the internet and maybe for good, healthy reasons and survival-based reasons, but it's very difficult to really connect with someone virtually that you haven't spoken to and eventually even do business with them. Right. It's very hard to have that transactional thing. So video, to your point, it, it connects with people and it brings people together. And that's that's frankly why we created Dub. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually very psyched to hear that you 
you understand our tech, you know what we're doing, and uh, you've had some positive experience from it. Oh yeah, no doubt. Yeah. What uh, What are some uh, What are some stories that you might share? Um, sending a personalized video to someone. What What kind of result has that Has that given you? Oh uh, well, I initially did it with a. Uh, it was a physical therapy group that I had signed up, and they had someone that was non technical. And getting on the phone and describing someone how to do a super simple task that you know is simple may not necessarily be simple to them. So I was like, oh, you know what? Let me just use Dub, jump on here, do a screen share, uh, send it to them, and then give them the, the actual correct button below the video to take them to uh, where they needed to go and to describe what to do. was that, that was the very first thing that the person I had never spoken to other than through one email said to me. It was like, wow, that was super professional. And it was and I was able to get it. And they weren't very technical people. <laughs> so it was definitely helpful. It, I, it made the, the whole outcome of my job. It took it from probably going to take two hours to about 20 minutes to get it done. So save time, which is the most important for you know all of us time. So well said, man. Well, I, I think uh, I think it's so amazing that you you look at this and you approach things with providing value and you know you've done that for me today because i've learned a lot from you and i feel inspired so i'd love to learn where we can learn more about you your book is on amazon open your mind and let doubt out um, please tell us where we can connect with you on linkedin website yeah you know if and i'm totally transparent i you know everyone tells me i'm funny i don't think i'm funny but i i just share things that I think is funny from other people or just ideas that I have. Facebook is the place that I spend the most time, believe it or not. And it's at Randall Chestnut, that's C-H-E-S-N-U-T-T. I say little in the middle, but I got much back. <laughs> got it. That's Very eight. cool. And then um, also LinkedIn, that's where you yep. and I connected. Yep. I spend time on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a little bit uh, uh, different. I spend most of the time um, inside of some of their more advanced features, uh, working with uh, groups inside of there, which has nice, been, yeah. and having your videos are, is really going to be powerful inside of these groups because some of these are, uh, ideas and concepts that you want to share. Typing them out takes forever, but saying them is much better, easier. There you go. There it is. Nice, Randall. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you, man. Um, stick around. I'll share some notes with you. Okay. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, Ruben. And thanks yeah. for your team, too, for having me. Likewise.